So a quick apology to everyone for this episode being late. In brief, here's what happened. I actually had this episode recorded ahead of time, but then I got lost planning for a three-day camping trip my wife and I were taking for the long weekend and yada, yada, yada. Cut to yesterday when I'm hiking on a trail and suddenly the thought hits me that, oh no, I didn't release the episode. So apologies all around, but we are back on our regular schedule, I promise. So please enjoy. One article described it this way, quote, The trail was over 400 miles through desert, winding through steep canyons, crossing barren plateaus, and passing by rivers and ponds of undrinkable water. At one point, it crossed the Colorado River near the mouth of the Grand Canyon, end quote. It shouldn't surprise any of my longtime listeners, or people who have just been paying attention in general, that such a trail could only be found in a wild, harsh place like Arizona. But who were the people brave enough to risk their lives by steering their wagons onto such a daunting journey? It shouldn't surprise us that they were all young and eager to start a new life. Nor should it surprise us that they were members of the Mormon Church, driven by religious conviction. However, the thing is, these young men and women were not heading into Arizona to set up a life for themselves and brave the elements for a chance at a bright future. Instead, they were heading away from Arizona to only turn around once they got to their destination and head back into the desert again. Why, you may ask? Well, from later on in the same article, we read this explanation. Quote, For over two decades, it was the slender thread that connected the LDS settlers in northeastern Arizona with the St. George Temple. It became an enduring testimony of faith of a people who refused to let hardship keep them from the promise of eternal marriage. End quote. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, that sounds like something worth talking about. I'm your host, David Rookhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 81, The Honeymoon Trail. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you all had a wonderful holiday season and a happy new year to boot. And with that jump into the future now completed, it's time to once again revisit the past with me. After nearly two years and 80 episodes, we have finally reached a point where we can leave the 1870s behind us and move directly into the 1880s. Though, to be fair, that line became increasingly fuzzy over the past few episodes. Now, I expect this decade to take as much time, if not more, than the past couple, seeing as there is a famous gunfight or two that's going to happen in between, so let's just dive straight in, shall we? Last time, we covered the settlements made by members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints along the Little Colorado River, which were mostly short exercises in futility and frustration. But since I left the Mormon farmers in such dire straits last episode, I thought I would rectify that by talking about the actual successes they enjoyed across Arizona after the failure of the initial settlements. 
So that starts with someone we dealt briefly with last time, William J. Flake, who was called to settle in Arizona by Brigham Young himself in 1877. Flake appears to have been too independently minded to abide the communal living situation at places such as Brigham City, run by Lot Smith, who you might remember from last episode is characterized by state historian Thomas Sheridan as ruling the colony with an iron fist. So Flake and other like-minded settlers took their chances along Silver Creek, a major tributary of the Little Colorado that drained the White Mountain watershed. A man named James Stinson had been farming roughly 300 acres of land along Silver Creek since 1873, but he sold his interest to Flake in 1878 in exchange for roughly $11,000 worth of livestock. These 300 acres were seated in a valley almost 30 miles due south of modern Holbrook, and was soon being peopled by others abandoning the harsh conditions along the Little Colorado River. In the latter half of 1878, a group arrived led by Apostle Erastus Snow, and it was quickly decided that Flake's Farm would be the ideal place for a town site. To honor this visiting dignitary and the man who was living at the literal center of town, this community took on the name by which we know it today, Snowflake. Sheridan points out that this community, and those around it, did not pool their resources together or live the united order as the older settlements had. Instead, families were given a city plot and two farm plots to work as they saw fit, with ties and cooperatives set up to help support the needy. Snowflake would go on to become the first county seat of the newly created Apache County in 1879, with the first court session of the county being held in Flake's house. This didn't last long, as the next year the county seat was moved to St. John's, which we'll cover in just a moment, and then Springerville before it moved back to St. John's for good in 1882. As one of my patented random asides, I once had a history professor in college who said that historians are only remembered by other historians, which is why we learn about them in history class. In that same spirit, I want to mention an early resident of Snowflake by the name of Joseph Fish. Originally from Illinois, Fish came to the Snowflake area in 1879 and lived in or around the community for many years. And the reason he is worth mentioning is because during that time he wrote A History of Arizona, which early historian James H. McClintock claims was the first consecutive history of the territory. And his manuscript still survives today, though I have regrettably not been able to access it for this particular project. But like I said, historians are only remembered by other historians, so here's to you, Mr. Fish. Now, William Flake actually bought a lot of land in the area, including a ranch about 20 miles or so to the south, owned by a man named Corden E. Cooley. Once a scout for General Crook, Cooley had been living in the area since the mid-1870s, supposedly with his two Apache wives— something that scandalized others when they met him. Originally, though, he had been ranching with a man named Marion Clark, but the two evidently fell into disputing and came to the conclusion that their habitation was a bit too close together. This being the frontier in the 1870s, they decided to settle their differences in the time-honored tradition of gambling, and led to one of the most famous and iconic scenes in Arizona history. 
Both men were devoted to a game called 7-Up, and were playing it one night in 1876 when Clark supposedly told Cooley, show low, or in other words, turn up the lowest card, and you can have the ranch. In response, Cooley turned over the next card in the deck, which happened to be the Deuce of Clubs, the lowest possible card in the game, and won a reported 100,000 acres, plus cattle, crops, and buildings. The reports of the earliest Mormon settlers in the area is that by then the community was already going by the name it has today, Sholo. In fact, the portion of US 60 that acts as the main street in town is even called Deuce of Clubs Avenue in honor of Cooley's winning draw. Flake and others would eventually buy the property from Cooley for an amount exceeding $13,000. During the early 1880s, we find Mormon settlers starting to find suitable lands all around the White Mountains and even further south. Now, there are far too many cogs turning here to mention them all, but let me recap with some brief highlights. Immediately south of Sholo is the town of Taylor, which is actually the second settlement to be named after Mormon prophet John Taylor, the first being another failed attempt at living along the Little Colorado River. It was also named Walker briefly, but since there existed a place called Walker near Prescott, the name had to be changed to Taylor. We also find the founding of some enclaves at Alpine, which at 8,000 feet led McClintock to claim it might have been the highest elevation in the entire U.S. where farming was still going on, and also at Springerville and Eager. And though originally a Hispanic settlement, Flake and others bought the land at Concho, which also turned into a Mormon settlement. Then we come to St. John's. The community's roots reach back years before the Mormons, and it had been settled by a group from New Mexico who used the area for sheep grazing. And the name, St. John's, actually came in honor of the first woman to live in the area who had the name of Maria San Juan Baca de Padilla. This makes the town the only place in Arizona with a saintly name that does not ultimately derive from Catholic missionaries or Mormon pioneers. Now, the Mormons made an attempt to buy the land in 1879, but were initially rebuffed. Several months later, they returned, and the owners must have liked the price better, roughly $19,000 in the form of 770 head of cattle, because this time, they decided to sell. Though it became a stronghold of Mormon pioneers in coming years, it did have its own fair share of problems to deal with. First off, turns out that the previous owners only had squatter rights to the land, which caused enormous difficulty and disputes later on when the railroad line was coming through and public land was being set aside for it. This site also happened to be along the Little Colorado River, and if we've learned anything from our time together, it's that farming along the Little Colorado is a giant headache. The land and water issue also brought the Mormons into conflict with their neighbors, particularly the Hispanic inhabitants who claimed a lot of the water rights. But despite all this, St. John's continued to thrive and, as I said, became a center of Mormon pioneering for a generation. When it comes to land disputes, though, the worst case is probably the community of Forest Dale. This settlement was built along what was known as Forest Dale Creek, a tributary of Carrizo Creek, which is a tributary of the Salt River south of Pinetop Lakeside. 
Apparently, it was a good spot that was well-watered and had good timber, and was perhaps even better than Sholo and Snowflake. The only tiny little problem was, it was on the wrong side of the White Mountain Apache Reservation border. To be fair, it was an honest mistake. Without modern maps, road signage, and GPS, it could be incredibly difficult to know exactly where a reservation stopped or started. Plus, the settlers had done their due diligence and ridden down to the San Carlos Reservation to ask the Indian agent there about the location. They were assured that it definitely was not on the reservation and the government would certainly protect their rights to the land. Unfortunately, the Indian agent who gave them this information was none other than Henry Hart, who we talked about back in episode 71, and who one writer characterized as the most corrupt of all Indian agents. I don't know if Hart intentionally lied to the Mormons or if he was simply ignorant of the reservation's boundaries. Both seem pretty plausible to me, but either way, he led them down the primrose path. About a year after a prosperous little settlement set up shop at Forestdale, the Mormons asked army officers to allow a few Apache families to also settle along the creek with them. However, proselytizing to these Apache didn't go very well and caused conflicts, and rumors began to go around that Forestdale was actually on the reservation. What followed was years of back and forth about where the boundary line was and if Forestdale was open for settlement or not. Settlers would alternatively go to the valley and then leave, depending on the current reckoning of where exactly the boundary line lay. Finally, in 1883, after roughly four years of this merry-go-round, the military finally came in and told everyone they had to leave. The back and forth over this actually became a national affair, and as late as 1916, we find a bill being submitted into Congress to give belated compensation to several of the surviving members of the Forestdale settlement. McClintock also mentions that one of these settlers put the blame for the whole debacle on the shoulders of none other than Cooley, he of Sholo's Deuce of Clubs, by claiming that the reservation line had actually been moved so that the settlers would not compete with him for the corn and forage contracts to nearby Fort Apache. Now, because it will feature prominently in a famous incident later in the 1880s, I want to mention one other place the Mormons began to settle, the Tonto Basin. Coming down off the Colorado Plateau in the White Mountains, these pioneers soon ran into the Mogollon Rim and the country that lay just to the south and hundreds of feet down from it. McClintock mentions that explorations of the Rim and the Tonto Basin began in the late 1870s, and by 1883 there were Mormon settlers in what is today Pine and only 10 miles away from modern Payson. There were several small settlements along Tonto Creek, Pine Creek, Rye Creek, and the East Verde River Valley, in the area of Pine and the Strawberry Valley. And because I can't help but put in a good plug for places people absolutely should go, the settlers on the upper Tonto Creek were just a stone's throw away from Tonto Natural Bridge, where some American settlement is attested to by 1889. Now, Tonto Natural Bridge is today a state park and definitely something any outdoors enthusiast in Arizona should visit. 
made out of travertine, which is a form of caliche composed of dissolved limestone that is basically calcium carbonate mixed with water, it is a sight to behold. At 183 feet high, 400 feet long, and 150 feet at its widest point, it's thought to be the longest travertine natural bridge in the entire world. It's good for a day hike and just another example of the grand beauty Arizona has to offer, so yeah, definitely make plans to go. Anyway, if we move down from the rim country, we come to the Tonto Basin itself. According to Mormon historian Fish, who both McClintock and I of course remember as our historical brother-in-arms, the first settlement in the Tonto Basin was in a place called Pleasant Valley. Today, we know it as the town of Young, accessible via the dirt portions of State Route 288 or Forest Road 512. Funny enough, for a place settled by Mormons, the town of Young was not named after Brigham Young, but rather Ola Beth Young, who served as the valley's first postmaster. Today, Young remains a sleepy little burg, accessible with a good four-wheel drive vehicle. Electricity wasn't available to residents until the 1960s, and cell service wouldn't arrive until 2009. For reference, that's when the third iPhone model came out. But Young, or rather Pleasant Valley, became infamous during the 1880s for a decade-long feud between two ranching families known as the Pleasant Valley War, which rivals in both bloodshed and sheer hatred the more famous Hatfield and McCoy feud in West Virginia. We will get to all of that in a coming episode, but for now we'll just mark Pleasant Valley's founding. Settlement in the Tonto Basin was delayed and eventually abandoned because of the fact that the area was littered with Apache. Long a part of the traditional stomping grounds for the Sibiku, White Mountain, and Tonto Apache bands, as well as the Yavapai, it was often crisscrossed by the Amerindians as they moved or raided hither and yon. You might remember from back in episode 52 that this is where King S. Woolsey had his celebrated victories against the Apache. This presence of a lot of Amerindians and a small supply of water meant that many of the Mormons who came to the area quickly moved on to other, literally greener pastures. Mormon prophet Wilford Woodruff would eventually authorize giving up on the Tonto Basin settlements altogether in the 1890s. Now, by the time that all these other settlements are set up, there was a well-worn trail leading from St. George, Utah, into North and Central Arizona for Mormon colonists heading south. But, as has often been mentioned, there was always a steady stream of people heading back up to St. George along the same path as well. Both to call it quits and escape the hot, harsh climate of Arizona, but also for a more romantic reason. Now, not to dive too deep into Mormon theology, but in the teachings of Joseph Smith and his successors is the idea that a marriage had the potential to last into the eternities, beyond death. To make sure that their union had no until-death-do-us-part clause, Mormon couples believed they had to receive an ordinance, known as a ceiling, in a temple. And I will point out here that temples are specified, wholly dedicated places, and not the same as the meeting houses members of the church attend every Sunday. Now, the problem is that, at this time there were no temples in Arizona. I mean, why would there be? 
The nearest one, completed in 1877, was hundreds of miles away in St. George. So for the young, dedicated Mormon couple in love, there was only one choice. Take the 400-mile trek to St. George to be sealed. According to an article written for the church, the first such trip took place in 1881 when a man named Alf Larson saved up enough money to buy a span of mules to take him and his fiancée to the temple in St. George. And apparently this trip included five wagons, including Larson's sister and her fiancée, and it took the whole company 20 days to get to their destination. After this, the common practice at the time would be to be married civilly at home and then take the long journey up to St. George. Or alternatively, the prospective bride and groom would travel in the company of chaperones until they could be married all at once in the temple. I've seen it written that a wagon and team to pull it became a very common wedding gift in the Arizona colonies. Soon the wagon route linking Arizona to St. George began to be called by the delightfully romantic title, The Honeymoon Trail. But despite the romance of it all, the trail could be anything but the luxurious vacation we expect of honeymoons today. It was still a long, hot, dusty trail fraught with dangers for the newlyweds. Crossing the Little Colorado River was always a chore, as the river could never fully decide whether it wanted to be a dry sandbed or a raging torrent. After that, feed and water for the animals drawing the wagon could become incredibly scarce. You might also recall the strong windstorms I mentioned in the last episode. Those haven't gone anywhere, and imagine trying to guide a team of mules and a wagon through one of those. One couple, Henry and Eliza Tanner, related one such encounter. They had come across some stray horses that had gotten loose from the wagon team ahead of them, so Henry rode off to return them to their owners. Eliza was left guiding the wagon when one of these windstorms kicked up, uprooting whole trees including one that fell right in front of her wagon. She managed to control her animals and get them around the tree and back onto the road, but her husband reported, quote, when she reached the camp, she had to go to bed at once with a sick headache and said that was the hardest day she had spent, end quote. But the most difficult part may as well have been crossing the Colorado River itself, despite the presence of Lee's Ferry. I didn't mention this before, but the river crossing is, of course, at the water level, which is at the bottom of what is essentially the eastern end of the Grand Canyon. Wagons had to carefully guide themselves down a steep hill called Lee's Backbone just to access the ferry. Wilford Woodruff, who visited Arizona on several occasions, opined, quote, It, meaning Lee's Backbone, was the worst hill, ridge, or mountain that I ever attempted to cross with a team and wagon on Earth. For two rods, we can only gain from four inches to 24 with all the power of the horses and two men rolling at the hind wheels and going down the other side was still more steep, rocky, and sandy, which would make it much worse than going up the north side. End quote. And remember, that is the opinion of a man who crossed the Rocky Mountains in a wagon. And though the ferry made things infinitely more easy, the Colorado could still be a tricky river to cross when it chose to be. Julia Ellsworth, who crossed the river with her fiancé Ezra West in 1886, wrote, quote, 
we had a very narrow escape of being drowned, and the ferryman worked frantically to keep from going into a whirlpool where years later he was drowned, end quote. And just for added fun, there was always the threat of bandits and hostile Amerindians to contend with. After crossing the Colorado, the route would take them along the Vermilion Cliffs to Jacob Lake and then up to Kanab, which actually led directly to the route that US 89A takes today after parting from US 89, about 20 miles south of Page. If you ever want a scenic drive, I heartily recommend this route. You can even stop by the site of Lee's Ferry on the way, which is now run by the National Park Service. If you do decide to take this trip, just remember to think about having to do it all, not in an air-conditioned car going 65 miles an hour, but with a wagon and team of horses. Travel to St. George for sealing in the temple would remain a fact of life for those living in northern Arizona up until 1926, when the temple in Mesa was finally finished and dedicated. Though now all I can think about is how much of a slog it would take to get to the Salt River Valley from Sholo or St. Joseph. All the dedication paid off eventually, however, as the church dedicated a temple in Snowflake in 2002. I would like to end today's discussion by wrapping up one dangling thread when it comes to Mormon colonization of northern Arizona. Namely, let's wrap up the life and times of Jacob Hamlin, the buckskin apostle. Hamblin continued to play a key role in keeping the Mormons and Navajos in semi-peace with each other and was often called upon to act as an intermediary. For example, in the winter of 1873-74, a group of Navajo had been trading with the Utes along the Sevier River in central Utah when they were killed by three Americans in retaliation for them killing and eating one of their cows. One of the Navajo was only badly injured and managed to not only live, but bring word to his people that his fellow travelers had been killed by the Mormons. After spending so many episodes detailing how the Americans just could not comprehend the multiple divisions of the Amerindians, I find it very ironic that in this case it was the Navajo who could not differentiate between the Mormons and the Americans that had killed the members of their band. I think there's a lesson in there somewhere generally about humanity, but I'll leave it to you to parse out. In any case, at the behest of Brigham Young, Hamlin set out to ride straight into the angry hornet's nest and talk to the Navajo in January 1874. McClintock grandiosely declares, quote, Possibly since St. Patrick invaded Erin, that's Ireland to you and me, no bolder episode had been known in history, end quote. Though he was entreated by others, including his own son, not to go, Hamlin wrote, quote, I have been appointed to a mission by the highest authority of God on earth. My life is a small amount compared with the lives of the saints in the interests of the kingdom of God. I determined to trust in the Lord and go on. End quote. Taking along only two Americans, who were not Mormons, by the way, and having only a Paiute captured by the Navajo to act as an interpreter, Hamlin met with the angry tribe, who detailed their list of injuries and then suggested several very creative ways that Hamlin could be tortured for his perceived role in the whole affair. All accounts are that Hamlin took all this with remarkable calmness before slowly and methodically explaining that the Mormons in general, and he personally, had not been part of the killing. 
After 11 hours, he and his companions were allowed to leave, and eventually he was able to take some Navajo to the site of the incident and demonstrate once and for all the Mormons' innocence in the whole affair. A couple years later, in 1876, he escorted Daniel H. Wells, Erastus Snow, and others to visit the Mormon colonies. It was during this trip that the Colorado River decided to be tempestuous, and the ferry boat they were riding on was swamped. Several men of the expedition managed to swim to safety or clung to the side of the wagons or the overturned ferry boat. One man, Lorenzo W. Roundy, was drowned in the river, and his body never recovered, making him one of the few fatalities recorded at Lee's Ferry. Another story from the time is that in the spring of 1877, Hamlin rode into the Hopi villages in the pursuit of an escaped criminal. While there, however, the Hopis implored him to pray to his god for rain, as none had fallen recently and it was killing their crops. Hamlin did what was asked, and according to McClintock at least, this seemed to work as rain fell shortly afterwards. The somewhat comical code of this story is that when Hamlin finally returned to his own home, he found that his crops had been stricken by drought and had died. In 1878, he moved to Arizona to serve as a counselor to Lot Smith, who had been appointed president of a stake, or a group of congregations. In 1879, Hamlin moved to the Round Valley in the White Mountains, which houses Springerville and Eager to preside over the Mormon settlements there. Jacob Hamlin, the buckskin apostle, would die from a malarial fever on August 31, 1886, in Pleasanton, New Mexico. His remains would be removed from New Mexico shortly thereafter and reinterred in Alpine, Arizona, closer to the place where his travels and negotiations had such a wide impact on future colonization. His grave marker, aside from giving his date of birth and death, reads, Jacob V. Hamlin, Peacemaker in the Camp of the Lamanites. I'm going to end our story here for this week. But I invite you to join me next week as we put one more entry into what has apparently become a four-part miniseries on Mormon colonization in Arizona. We're going to turn our attention down south to where the Mormons would set up successful colonies in the southeastern part of the territory in the 1870s and 1880s. It's also time to mention their interactions with the other settlers in Arizona at this time and finally address the giant elephant in the room, whenever we talk about 19th century Mormons. That is, polygamy. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Goodbye. Goodbye.